0: A little boy was making one of his first visits to a church. His mom had decided that they needed to attend church. So she dressed him up in his best clothes and carefully combed his hair. She warned him to be quiet at church, don't fidget or squirm, and above all else, he was to be on his very best behavior. When they entered the church, the boy was quite curious about everything. It was a strange world where everyone spoke in hushed whispers and bowed their heads so low they seemed to disappear behind the high pews. His mother led him to one of those long benches with the high backs where a few others sat quietly. They all knelt together and bowed their heads together. The silence lasted only a few seconds, however, before the boy's voice rang out loud and clear in the cathedral. Mommy, who are we hiding from? Many of us have experienced church settings where we were taught that worship is solemn and serious, be quiet, don't talk. There is, of course, a certain amount of value in solemnity and silence. But unfortunately, we have lost an important aspect of biblical worship, which the Israelites understood. Some of our contemporary churches today have grasped this aspect of worship far better than many traditional churches. Worship involves celebration. We see this principle demonstrated in Nehemiah 8, verses 13 to 18. When you have been restored from a broken world and you now have renewed hope, worship becomes a celebration of life and joy. In this chapter, the leaders of each clan gather to ask Ezra to continue his study of the scriptures. They were so convicted by the word of God they wanted more. This is what happens when revival takes place. The Bible gets hold of our lives and we can't get enough of it. So they begin to study the scriptures, only to discover that they have not been following the law properly in regard to a festival called the Feast of Booths. Sometimes our knowledge of scripture becomes so encrusted with tradition that we lose sight of the truth of the Bible and the joy of God's grace. As someone has said, our ritualism can become rutulism. But when we look at the Bible with fresh eyes, we see the truth so clearly. It's like washing the windows of our faith with the truth of God's word. Suddenly, everything becomes clear again. Listen to the description in Nehemiah 8, verses 13 to 18. Then, on the second day, the heads of fathers of households of all the people, the priests and the Levites, were gathered to Ezra the scribe that they might gain insight into the words of the law. They found written in the law how the Lord had commanded through Moses that the sons of Israel should live in booths during the feast of the seventh month. So they proclaimed and circulated a proclamation in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go out to the hills and bring olive branches and wild olive branches, myrtle branches, palm branches, and branches of other leafy trees, to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof, and in their courts, and in the courts of the house of God, and in the square at the water gate, and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. The entire assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booths and lived in them. The sons of Israel had indeed not done so from the days of Joshua the son of Nun to that day. And there was great rejoicing. He read from the book of the law of God daily, from the first day to the last day, and they celebrated the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the ordinance. There were three feasts which all Jewish males were required to attend in the city of Jerusalem each year. There was the Feast of Passover, held in April. There was the Feast of Pentecost, held in June. And finally, there was the Feast of Booths or In-Gatherings, which was held in October. We as Christians know a great deal about Passover because of the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. We know a little about Pentecost because of the coming of the Holy Spirit to enable us to follow God's ways. But we know almost nothing about the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. Yet Josephus, the Jewish historian, says that the Feast of Booths is the holiest and greatest of the Hebrew feasts. The feast is called Sukah, which means booths, and it comes five days after Yom Kippur, the somber and serious Day of Atonement when the priests atoned for the sins of the people. But unlike the solemn day of atonement, the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles was a fun and lively celebration. The rabbis said, He who has not seen Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles does not know what rejoicing means. The feast was a reminder that God, as the Talmud says, dwells among us not out of sadness, but out of the joy of religious duty. In the Feast of Booths, each family builds a sukkah, a hut or canopy made out of tree branches in the area. They would build this hut on the flat rooftops of their houses or in their courtyards. and They would live in these huts for seven days. They camped out. On the eighth day, they would have another celebration called the Simchat Torah, or rejoicing in the law, according to verse 18. So what can we learn from this ancient Jewish feast about our own worship of God? How does it apply to us? I think we start with what it means to the Jewish people even today. And we will discover that these are the very truths that we celebrate as Christians. Worship involves celebration. And we are, first of all, to celebrate the provision of God. We are to celebrate the provision of God. The Feast of Booths is also called the Feast of Ingatherings in the Bible because it occurred after the fall harvest. It was a harvest festival, thanking God for his material blessings to the nation of Israel. Deuteronomy 16.15 says, Seven days you shall celebrate a feast to the Lord your God in the place which the Lord chooses, because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce, in all the work of your hands, so that you will be altogether Joyful. This festival was the Jewish equivalent of our American thanksgiving. In fact, our pilgrim forefathers may have planned their first Thanksgiving celebration after the Jewish festival of harvest. The Puritans considered themselves to be the new Israel. This was the promised land where God would build his kingdom. They modeled many aspects of life after the kingdom of Israel. The Feast of Booths, Not only celebrated the harvest, but also looked back to God's provision when he brought the nation out of Egypt and delivered them from slavery. So the feast celebrated not only material prosperity, but deliverance from their enemies as well. God provides and God protects. We too celebrate those same basic truths. But giving thanks to God should not be just saying grace at our meals or once a year at Thanksgiving. Celebrating God's provision and God's protection must encompass all we are and all we have every single day. We should live in the spirit of praise. G.K. Chesterton wrote, you say grace before meals. All right. But I say grace before the concert and the opera and grace before the play and pantomime and grace before a book and grace before sketching, painting, swimming, fencing, boxing, walking, playing, dancing, and grace before I dip the pen in ink. Celebrating the provision of God is foundational to worship. The Maasai tribe in West Africa has some unusual ways to say thanks. When the Maasai express thanks, they bow, put their forehead on the ground, and say, My head is in the dirt. Another African tribe expresses gratitude differently. They come and sit for a long time in front of the hut of the person who helped them, and they say, I sit on the ground before you. As Pastor Joel Gregory says, thanksgiving is an act of humility. At the same time that we are celebrating the provision of God, we also secondly celebrate our dependence on God. We celebrate our dependence on God. We cannot do otherwise. To celebrate God's provision for us is to acknowledge our dependence upon him for that provision. This is what we often miss in our worship. It is the sense of dependence that inspires both prayer and worship. As long as we have everything, we do not learn to celebrate our dependence on God. And that's why the Jews had this festival of booths the festival graphically reminded reminded them that all they had was by God's grace as they sat in makeshift leafy tents for seven days. At the Feast of Booths, the people would intentionally leave their permanent homes, the comforts of their material prosperity, to live in temporary leafy tents. It was to remind them of their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness instead of entering the promised land, according to Leviticus 23.43. The shanties on the roof were to remind them that these were not their permanent homes. Life is transitory. It's here today and gone tomorrow. and All the value that we place in our material possessions means nothing when life is over. Our lives and our possessions are impermanent and vanishing, like the morning mist on a pond. That's why the scroll of Koalath was usually read during this week of living in these tents. The scroll of Koalath is our book of Ecclesiastes. It teaches the vanity and impermanence of life under the sun. Do not live for today, but for eternity. Perhaps it would be easier for us to remember that lesson if we lived in tents for seven days each year instead of the comforts of our homes. Rabbi Eckstein writes, True joy is rooted in the acknowledgement of our dependence on a loving, providential God. But there is also the implication that if we don't celebrate God's provision and our dependence on him when we have much, then we may have to learn how to celebrate him when we have little. After all, that's why the Jews wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. They didn't have the faith to celebrate God's ability to provide for them in conquering the land he had promised to give them. So, They had to learn to trust him in the wilderness with little. There's a lesson here for all of us. Deuteronomy 28 verses 47 to 48 says, Because you did not serve the Lord your God joyfully and gladly in the time of prosperity, therefore in hunger and thirst, in nakedness and dire poverty, you will serve the enemies the Lord sends against you. God sometimes must teach us the same lesson. If we will not serve God gladly in our prosperity, we may need to learn to serve God sadly in our poverty. The Feast of Booths teaches us to celebrate the provision of God and our dependence on god third we must celebrate our commitment to god listen to god's instructions about the feast of booths in leviticus 23:33 to 38 again the lord spoke to moses saying speak to the sons of israel saying On the 15th of this seventh month is the Feast of Booths for seven days to the Lord. On the first day is a holy convocation. You shall do no laborious work of any kind. For seven days you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation and present an offering by fire to the Lord. It is an assembly. You shall do no laborious work. These are the appointed times of the Lord, which you shall proclaim as holy convocations to present offerings by fire to the Lord, burnt offerings and grain offerings, sacrifices and drink offerings, each day's matter on its own day. Besides, those of the Sabbaths of the Lord and besides your gifts and besides all your votive and free will offerings which you give to the Lord. Notice that they were to present burnt offerings, grain offerings, and other sacrifices to God during this festival. They were to present these offerings in addition to the gifts, vows, and freewill offerings which they would give to the Lord. Deuteronomy 16 verse 17 refers to the Feast of Booths and says, They shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able according to the blessing of the Lord your God, which he has given to you. Well, that sounds much like what Paul instructs us to do in Second Corinthians 9, verses 7 and 8. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, So that always, having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. My friends, we give back what God gives to us. In Jesus Christ, God has given us the greatest gift of all. And as we follow Jesus, he provides for us and enables us to give back to him. Christ gives us the seed to plant for him. He enables us to live for him. Our offerings are expressions of worship to him. How often do we come empty-handed to worship the Lord? One of the lessons that the Jews learned from the Feast of Booths was that they were to sacrifice their own comfort for the sake of obedience to God's word. The Jewish Talmud tells a story about how the nations came to God at the judgment and begged him to give them another chance to obey the law. So God told them that he had an easy commandment called the Succa or Booths. Go and observe it. Immediately every one of them went and made a booth on the top of his roof. But the Holy One, blessed be he, will cause the summer sun to blaze forth over them to test their convictions, and every one of them will trample down his booth and flee. What about our offerings to God? Do we sacrifice to show our commitment to him? Or do we often come to worship God empty-handed? Does the hot sun of job loss or financial ruin evaporate our spiritual commitment? Do we only praise God in prosperity when things are going well, or can we thank God in the hard times? Fourth, the Feast of Booths teaches us to celebrate the kingdom of God. One of the reasons why the Feast of Booths is such a time of rejoicing for the Jews is that they associate the Feast of Booths with the Messianic kingdom. We know that there is coming a day when the Messiah, Jesus Christ, will return and redeem this world. He will reign from Jerusalem over all the nations. The prophet Amos in Amos 9.11 uses the very same Hebrew word for booth used in this passage here to refer to the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem when he says, In that day I will raise up the fallen booth of David, and all of its breaches, I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. Now Amos prophesied 300 years before the time of Nehemiah, but this verse must have encouraged him as he rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem in his day. Amos goes on to say that God will restore the nation of Israel, and they will not again be rooted out from their land which I have given to them, in Amos 9:15. This is the hope of Israel even today. The Feast of Booths reminds them year after year that the kingdom of Messiah will be restored one day to Israel and we join them in that kingdom hope because we know that Jesus Christ is coming back again. The kingdom of Christ, will include the Gentiles, that's us, who will come to worship God at Jerusalem each year at the Feast of Booths. Now here is a very interesting point, my friends. The Feast of Booths is the only one of the three major Jewish feasts that will be observed in the Messianic Kingdom, according to Zechariah 14, verse 16. Passover will not be celebrated in the Messianic Kingdom because... Christ already died as our Passover lamb. Pentecost will not be celebrated in the Messianic kingdom because the coming of the Holy Spirit fulfilled that prophecy. Only the Feast of Booths will be celebrated in the kingdom by Jews and Gentiles alike. It is interesting that this expectation is included in the ancient Jewish prayers, Devout Jews prayed for Gentiles during the Feast of Booths, and they offered 70 bulls for sacrifices on behalf of the Gentile nations of the world in the Feast of Booths. The great hope of the Jewish people is that they will one day celebrate the Feast of Booths in Jerusalem. The Jews to this day conclude every Passover meal and Day of Atonement service with the expression, Next year in Jerusalem. Pious Jews over the years have slept with their clothes on and their canes by their sides, just so they would be ready to accompany Messiah to Jerusalem at a moment's notice. It is still customary at Jewish weddings for the groom to break a glass signifying that his joy is not complete until he lives in the promised land. Many Jews still leave a corner or a brick of their home unfinished as their statement of faith that this home where they are living is not permanent. They look forward to the day when God keeps his promises made in Zechariah for them to live in the land during the kingdom of Messiah. My friends, do you know what? God will not disappoint them. He will keep his word. They will one day enjoy the kingdom of Messiah ruling from Jerusalem. What they don't understand is the Messiah is Jesus Christ, who died to pay the price for sin, lives to enable us to live for him, and will come back one day to set up his kingdom on earth. Jesus taught his disciples to pray for that future kingdom. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That prayer request will be answered one day in the messianic kingdom. There is coming a day when the saved Gentiles and the saved Jews from all over the world will gather together to worship Jesus Christ, our Savior and their Messiah they will know that the one who they rejected is the king of all the earth. This is the one festival in the Jewish calendar that is ours to celebrate together in the kingdom. So my friends, the Feast of Booths reminds us that our God reigns. There's a parable that the Jewish rabbis tell about God. They compare God to a human king whose children come to visit him in the capital only three times a year. The king enjoys their company so much that he is deeply saddened when they leave. So the king invites them to stay an extra day. In the same way, God is so saddened when we leave his presence that he asks us to stay with him in worship a little longer. And in Nehemiah 8, verse 18, there is an eighth day added to the Feast of Booths, which teaches us that we are to celebrate the Word of God. Fifth principle, we are to celebrate the Word of God. Listen to what Nehemiah wrote in Nehemiah 8:18. 8, he read from the book of the law of God daily, from the first day to the last day, and they celebrated the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the ordinance. The eighth day is a holiday in its own right called the Simchat Torah, or the Day of Rejoicing in the Law of God. They have a great assembly to celebrate the Word of God, which is the foundation of their faith. This festival took on special significance to the Jews in the Soviet Union in the days of the Cold War. It was against the law for Jews in the Soviet Union to practice their faith openly. Yet on this one day, each year, the Jews would defy the KGB and gather in front of synagogues in Moscow and Kiev. They would sing and they would dance and celebrate the holiday together, no matter what the consequences They were celebrating the word of God and their hope in the future kingdom. Should we as Christians do less? The Jews who don't know the Savior value the word of God. Did you know that a scroll of the law when it is tattered and old must be buried in the ground like a human being? If a scroll of the law is dropped, then all who saw it drop must observe a fast day. That would keep some of us klutzes mighty thin if we had to do that whenever the Bible was treated disrespectfully. If a printed Torah drops, then it is kissed as a sign of respect. The word of God is so sacred that it took a year for a Torah scroll to be copied by hand, letter by letter. Now, I'm not suggesting that we become superstitious about the book, nor that we worship this book. But I am suggesting that we could learn from our Jewish friends that the word of God is valuable. It should be honored. We could practice our own Simchat Torah, our own rejoicing in the Bible by treating his word with respect. The Bible should not be treated casually, but with honor, for it is the foundation of our faith. So what can we learn from this ancient Jewish festival called the Feast of Booths? We can learn that, one, we must celebrate the provision of God. Two, we must celebrate our dependence on God. Three, we must celebrate our commitment to God. Four, we must celebrate the kingdom of God. And five, we must celebrate the word of God. Now that's a pretty good formula for worship because worship involves celebration. One of my most unforgettable experiences was to be at the western wall of the temple in in Jerusalem as Sabbath began. Our tour guide, a major in the Israeli army, had arranged for us to get back to Jerusalem at sunset on Friday as Shabbat was beginning. After passing through the mandatory checkpoints with their guards and metal detectors, we entered the square near the western wall of the temple. It's often called the Wailing Wall because the Jews weep for the destruction of the temple. However, not only weeping, but dancing takes place at the Western Wall. That was the surprising element for me. Our tour guide assured us that Gentiles were welcome, so we made our way through the large crowds. Near the wall were the Orthodox Jews in their hats and robes with the scrolls of the law. They were praying and reciting scripture. I walked freely among them to within a few feet of the wall itself, and just stood, stood there and took it all in. It was a somber scene of worship. But farther out in the square was another scene. I walked around among crowds of young people who were forming circles, dancing and singing, laughing and shouting. It was a scene of happiness and fun. The two scenes of worship formed one large celebration. The serious prayers and the joyous dancing were both part of the same celebration. I think we can learn from them that worship is a celebration of what God has done for us that involves both serious thought and joyous hope. So let's celebrate. The Jews celebrate a Messiah they do not know and hope will come to liberate them one day. We celebrate a Savior who died for us and lives that we too might live forever. Let's celebrate our victory in him with at least a measure of the enthusiasm with which they celebrate the Feast of Booths.